Good morning again from Nine Street Church. Um, at some point, I, I will be getting a phone call at 11. Um, <laughs> we, the catering guy is coming, and so uh, if, if I have to like uh, answer the phone really quick, uh, just excuse me. <laughs> but anyways, just so happy to see you all here today, and we're actually going to continue in our, in our sermon series, um, Spiritual Harvest, where we look through the fruits of the Spirit, and more importantly, how do we develop these fruits of the Spirit within our own lives? And so when we first started off, we, we kicked off by talking about love and joy. Uh, last week, we talked about peace and patience or forbearance. And today, we're going to cover the next two fruits of kindness and goodness. Now, sometimes I, I think it's, it's easy for us to kind of fall into the trap of, you know, especially with kindness and goodness, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of just trying harder, right? Let me just try harder to develop these fruits and I think it's, it's important to have discipline. I think it's important to have that sort of willpower, that fortitude of trying hard. But I actually want to look at this from a different angle today. I remember back when I was forced to study U.S. history, you know, back, back in high school, um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a very historic pact called, uh, in, it was created in 1928. It was called the Kellogg-Briand Pact. I'm sure, I'm sure Stanley knows all about it. And it was, it was signed by several countries, um, especially France, the United States, and Germany. And historically speaking, this was created 10 years after World War I. And, and the goal of this pact was basically this, like how do we make sure that such a tragedy would never happen again in human history, where people have to die in war, where people have to fight one another? And, and for those of you who, who are history buffs, um, you know that this pact, although it was very significant, it was also a little bit ridiculous because their goal to stop future wars was simply this. We'll just make war illegal. If we make war illegal, then no country would ever fight a war ever again. And on the service level, you know, this, this pact, it, it really represented the pinnacle of some sort of idealistic diplomacy, where it's a world that tries to resolve its conflicts through negotiation instead of war. And if we did this, then there would be world peace. No human lives would ever have to die to senseless violence. We can decrease our military size. We can use our military budget to enrich the lives of our citizens. We can live in harmony, in peace with our neighbors. And it's very noble and very idealistic, but of course, there's one fatal flaw. It relied entirely on our human will and on our integrity. Just because you make something illegal does not mean that people will not do it. And just because it sounds nice doesn't mean it will be followed. And drawing a parallel to, to our spiritual lives, um, I think this pact is akin to telling Christians that the secret to holiness, the secret to holiness is to simply stop sinning. It's like telling you that the secret to living a holy and pleasing life to God depends entirely on your willpower to never sin ever again. Now, unfortunately, that is what most other faith traditions teach. How do you become more loving? How do you become more joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, and good? You work harder. You try harder. And the reality is, you, can actually, you actually can improve these qualities in your life by working harder. But for anyone who's tried to do this through their willpower alone, apart from Christ, they will quickly realize how absolutely impossible it is to be perfect at it. 
It's like trying to drain the ocean or trying to move the mountain with brute force. It's simply impossible. And so as we turn our eyes to our passage today from Ephesians chapter 4, we're actually going to see the true secret, the real secret to developing kindness and goodness in our lives. And I think without this secret, we'll be left to our own limited willpower and we'll always fight this constant battle against the sinful nature that lives in our heart, that sinful nature that corrupts everything that we try to do. And so let's take a look at our passage here today from Ephesians 4, starting from verse 29. It reads, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so what is the secret? What is the secret to being kind and compassionate and good to one another? The secret is actually found in verse 30, where we receive the assurance of salvation. And this is where the Apostle Paul, he reminds us that we are given the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if we understand why this assurance of salvation is important, it will actually act as a springboard. It will actually act as, as a trampoline that actually take our faiths to unexpected heights. But if we don't understand it, then nothing changes in our lives. And we will continue to wrestle with the same problems and face the same failures that we have faced our entire lives. And so why is the assurance of salvation so important? Why is this the secret? If we trust that we are saved, then we are sure that we are completely forgiven and unconditionally loved by God. If we trust that we are saved, we are sure that we are completely forgiven and unconditionally loved by God. And this is the foundation of the Christian faith. In the Bible, there is actually a spectrum concerning our relationship with God. On, on the left-hand side, if we go to the next slide here, Oh, sorry, one more. On the left-hand slide, yeah, on the left-hand side, there's the relationship of being a slave to God. In this relationship, it's actually dominated by power and fear. There's a fear of punishment and maybe even a fear that God is your enemy. And I think sometimes we as Christians, we live on this left-hand side of a master-slave dynamic. We come to worship him here at the church. We worship him with our lips on Sunday, but secretly in our hearts, sometimes it's a relationship that is ruled by fear. And if this is how our relationship with God is seen, then what does our obedience to God look like then? Well, I'm kind because I have to be. I'm loving because I have to be. I'll put on a, a fake smile because I need to be loving. I have no choice but to behave in such a way or else I'll be punished by God or God will be angry at me. And I think sometimes this is how we see God, as someone who is secretly out to get us, someone who is only here to punish us for our wrongdoings. And so when our obedience is born out of fear, I think even our good deeds, they're corrupted. They're corrupted by fear. They might even be corrupted by disgust 
like a, like a little child who's forced to share his or her food or his or her toys. Yet what the Bible teaches us about salvation is that we are completely forgiven and we are completely reconciled to God. And what that means is that even if you mess up, even if you mess up deliberately, you're forgiven. Sorry, catering is here. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so back to our sermon. <laughs> Welcome to our commercial break. Even if I sin deliberately, I am forgiven by God. That means if I go home today and I cuss up a storm, if I treat everyone around me awfully, and I do this deliberately with full intention that I know I'm doing wrong, I am still forgiven. And this runs so counterintuitively to what we think, because if I did something wrong deliberately with the intention of harm, then my thought process is that I should be punished. But the truth of the gospel is that even if I take advantage of God's grace, he lets me. He suffered the penalty for all of my sins so that I can be saved. He loves us so much that he actually allows us to take advantage of his grace. And if you don't believe me, you might have to re-examine the scriptures. You might have to re-examine the gospel because if all of my sins are not forgiven, even the deliberate ones, then we're back at square one where we have to try to earn our salvation, where we try our best not to lose our salvation. But that is impossible. We can't earn it. We've tried that strategy our whole lives. And so what the gospel teaches us is actually the opposite. We neither earn it, and outside of rejecting Jesus, there's actually nothing that we can do to lose it, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how many times we do evil deliberately. And the only reason why God shows us such tremendous grace is not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. In fact, I encourage you all, the next time you do sin, try, try this, this week, this month, this year, the next time you do sin, remind yourself not of God's judgment, but of God's forgiveness, a forgiveness that is born out of love that Christ is willing to bear the penalty of your wrongdoings, no matter what it is, big or small. 1 John 4.18, if we go to the next slide here, it says this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishments, but we're no longer punished. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so what we see is that whereas our relationship with God was once defined by a slave-master relationship, a relationship defined by fear, we can actually now move to the far right-hand side of the spectrum of that of a child and a loving parent, a relationship born out of love, where there is nothing that we can do that will make us lose this relationship of love. And so, brothers and sisters, more than anything, you must absolutely sure of this. Because when we are absolutely certain that we are forgiven and that we are unconditionally loved, then the magic begins to happen. Perhaps for the first time in our lives, we can freely 
love others. We can freely be kind to others and do good to others without expecting anything in return. We no longer have to try to be good in order to earn God's love because we already have it. We no longer have to do good to win the approval of others because I have the approval of someone who is greater, of God's approval. And so when we are completely sure of God's forgiveness of sins and God's unconditional love for us, we are finally set free to truly love others without condition. But something else begins to happen within us as we completely trust the truth of God's forgiveness and God's unconditional love for us. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, thousands, you know, thousands of years ago, he prophesied this. This is before the coming of Jesus Christ. He prophesied this. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And through Christ, we are given both a new heart and a new spirit. And what this, you know, what is this new heart and what is this new spirit? It's the heart of God and the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. When we are given this new heart and this new spirit, two things happen within us that allow us to develop these fruits of kindness and goodness. First, when we receive this new heart and this new spirit, we begin to hate what God hates. In verse 30, at the, actually at the beginning of the verse, Paul, he actually reminds the church in Ephesus, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, when, I, when I was reading this passage for myself, you know, just before studying it more in depth, um, just, just reading that part, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, it, it made me pause for a moment. I recognize and I know that I'm unconditionally loved by God, but I know that I still do things that makes the Holy Spirit upset. And the passage, you know, when I understood this, the, the passage, it, it opened itself in a way that I did not expect. You see, in the past, when, when I read this passage, it sounded incredibly legalistic, right? Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit or else something bad's going to happen, right? Going back to the slave-master dynamic, that is how I read the verse in the past. But from a relationship of love, it opened itself entirely differently. Through even our limited and our faulty human empathy, we don't want to hurt those that we love. We don't want to hurt those that we care for. There are certain things that we don't say, certain things that we don't do in front of those we love because we know that it grieves them. It makes them upset. And likewise, if the Holy Spirit lives within me and this relationship is ruled by love, I likewise, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit that I love. In verse 31, Paul, he, he goes on to list all the things that grieve God's spirit. Paul says this. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, how would we normally try to go about this? Normally, we would just try harder, right? We control our tongue. We use all of our willpower to not blow up at the other person. We basically try to follow Paul's advice in verse 29 where he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, right? We just try harder. But by doing so, we're actually, working on the uh, we're actually working on the symptoms instead of the root cause. In Proverbs 4.23, we actually learn this. He's, you know, 
wise man once said this in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. In Luke 6.45, Jesus tells us this, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so when Paul, when he says here, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, not only is Paul asking us to look at the surface level of being careful of what we say, but Paul is actually encouraging us to look deeper, to look deep within our hearts, to see what causes us to even think or say these awful things to begin with. And so what's the root cause of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, and every other form of malice? First is that I desire evil and hostility more than I desire God. You see, the thing is, if we are living moment by moment, second by second, in union with our loving God, there's actually no room for hostility in my heart. There's no room for bitterness or rage. There's no room for these things because I know that these are the things that grieves the Holy Spirit. These are the things that make God upset. And so if these are the things that make God upset and I love God, and God's heart is also beating within me, then not only do I not do these things, but I have no desire to do them. I can feel angry. I can feel rage. There's nothing sinful about experiencing these things. But the desire, the desire to act. See, I love and I desire God so much that it crowds out any desire for evil and any desire of hostility within my heart. And so that's the first root cause, when I desire evil more than I desire God. And the second root cause of bitterness, rage, and the like is self-worship. You see, the thing is, we only blow up at other people if we believe that we are more important than them or that we are worth more than them. You know, when I worship myself, I essentially place my needs, my desires, my ego above theirs. And so when that happens, we feel a need to defend our pride. We feel a need to make a point, whether that is with our words or with our fists. We feel a need to not let ourselves be publicly shamed, so we lash back in order to regain the respect of others. And all of this is about me, my worth, my pride. And if it's all about me, then the root cause of malice is essentially this, that I love myself more than I love you. If we look deep within our hearts, do we see this poison of self-worship corrupt the thoughts that come into our minds? Does it corrupt the words that come out of our mouths? Does it corrupt the actions that come out of our hands? Do we see the truth that perhaps, maybe, I do love myself more than I love others? And if you do, I want to first remind you of what we said earlier that, hey, first of all, we are completely forgiven. We are unconditionally loved despite these desires, despite our self-worship because of Jesus' death on the cross. 
And as we experience the forgiveness of sins and begin to feel the truth that, hey, actually I am loved despite how awful I am, we're now invited to love in return. We're invited to flip the script in our hearts by loving as God loves. If we remember the truth that through God's salvation we are given a new heart and the Holy Spirit lives within us, then loving as God loves is not a rule that we just follow. It's not even about being a better version of ourselves, actually. It's to realize that you are a new and renewed person. Outwardly, you cannot see that I am a new person, right? My body, my flesh is still the same. Even one day, this body will die. But inwardly, in my mind and in my heart, the process of renewal is happening. A process is beginning within my heart, and a process is also beginning within your heart, where we are allowed, finally, to tune into God's Spirit, where we are allowed to submit to God's Spirit, whether that's our thoughts, our actions, or our deeds, and we begin to reflect God's nature. We begin to reflect God's thoughts, we begin to reflect God's desires, we begin to reflect God's actions in this world. And just as the moon reflects the sun in the darkness of the nights, we become the reflections of God's goodness in the darkness of this world. We reflect God's kindness and we reflect his goodness. And so starting first with kindness, or krestoi in Greek, um, we see it's actually very profound because being kind in Greek, it's, it's more than just being nice. It's more than just being polite to one another. In Greek, one of the meanings of krestoi is to be useful, to be useful to others. And if this is the case, then one of the more accurate ways that we can translate this word is a useful kindness that we display and that we show to other people. It's a type of kindness that moves us to feed the hungry, to comfort the sick, and to build up those who are struck down by the trials of life. This is the same kindness that Christ showed in his life when he healed the sick, when he casted out demons, and when he brought dead people back to life, including ourselves. And if these are the ways that God chooses to display his kindness, more than just politeness, if this is how God shows his kindness, by having a useful kindfulness to us, then I desire to reflect that kindness and to show it to others as well. And it's not just kindness that we reflect. In our passage, Paul, he goes on to say that we should be both kind and compassionate. And the Greek word for compassionate, it's, it's, it's also a very interesting word. Um, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this because you know, there's just way too many consonants there. But it's actually made up of two words. The first word is eu, you, which means good, and the second word, uh, <laughs> uh it means your intestines. And so when you combine it together, compassion actually literally means to have good intestines. And you're like, what in the world? In ancient Greek, uh, in the ancient Greek world, they thought that our guts were the seat of our emotions. Right? That's where we kind of get the phrase of having a gut feeling about sometimes. Because oftentimes we feel our emotions, not in our heads, but we feel it viscerally in our body, in our guts. 
And so when we combine the idea of goodness and the sensation of emotions in our guts, we actually see what goodness and compassion really are. Compassion is to love someone so much that we feel it viscerally in our bodies. It doesn't matter if it's someone in this church, someone outside this church, or even a stranger on the street. As we reflect God's compassion, as we reflect God's goodness, we want to do good, not just because we have to, but because we can't help it. I feel it in my body that I need to love you. I feel it in my body that I need to serve you, to show goodness and compassion to you. I remember back in 2012 when, you know, we just sung Hosanna not too long ago, when I first heard the song, The Bridge, you know, I, I was just like looking at the bridge for like, you know, I don't, maybe not an hour, but, you know, for, for, for a good amount of time. I was just like, oh my goodness, like I've never read or seen anything so deep. And still today, every time I play that song or listen to that song, the bridge really, you know, sticks to me. And it says this, it says, heal my heart and make it clean. Open my eyes to things unseen. And this is where, it, for me, it gets absolutely crazy. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And then everything I am is now for your kingdom's cause. As I walk from earth, from the moment I live, into eternity, until the moment I die, I want to live for God's kingdom, to have my heart be broken for what breaks God's heart. Brothers and sisters, as the Holy Spirit lives within you, and as God's heart beats within your chest, what is one thing that fills you with compassion? Who is that one person what is that one cause or that one purpose that stirs within your body a gut reaction to bring kindness, to bring goodness, and to bring love? In what way is God stirring you to reflect his goodness in this world? And brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you that being, being a Christian, it's more than just being polite. It's more than being nice. I encourage you, and I, I encourage you to understand that Deep within your hearts is a faith that can move mountains. Deep within your hearts, there is a faith that can change the world and can change all the people around you. Because it's no longer you who live, but the almighty and the all-powerful God who lives within you. So brothers and sisters, go today, be bold, and be courageous in bringing kindness and goodness to all people and to all places. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, today we want to first thank you for, for the one thing that, that started this change within us. We want to thank you for your, for your radical forgiveness and for your unconditional love. Lord, we just want to, to thank you that you have called us as your own, no matter how much we stray from you. And so, Father, we pray that you'll chase away the lies and the feelings in our heart that tell us that we are not enough because we are already called as your own children. Lord, we thank you that through the blood of Christ shed for our sins, you made all of this possible for us. 
We thank you for the resurrection of Christ so that we know that our faith and that our lives are not in vain, but we will inherit the crown of life just as Christ did 2,000 years ago. But Father, while we're still here on earth, we just pray that your will be done, not only in our lives, but through our lives. We pray that as your representatives here on earth, that you will allow us to do your will, that you will allow us through our actions to love one another, to show kindness and goodness to one another. Father, we pray that you'll develop within us a boldness and and a courage to create change in the world around us. Father, we pray that you'll let us shake the status quo, that you'll let us bring dead souls back to life and let us speak words of life in a dying world. Lord, let us do all of this through you, for your power is made perfect in our weakness. And through your strength, we can do all things. Let us reflect your kindness and goodness today. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.